the eye that it takes to be a great videographer and, and filmmaker, um, yeah, I'm sure everybody has their own perspective and everyone thinks they have their own style. But I got to tell you, uh, Justin Allen has quite a style as a filmmaker um, and it comes from his history. So, uh, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm saying this as a guy who has a marketing agency and, and has had one for a long time. I've seen a lot of videographers. Um, so your stuff is pretty damn good. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, I don't think I realized right away that I had a specific style. Uh, I just think I was trying to make things that look decent and edit them to to be at a level that was at least recognizably good. But then, you know, looking back at my own work, I'm like, oh, I do notice that there are things that I do that maybe are unique. Um, however, as I work with other people and learn what the people that I admire are doing, I'm, that changes a bit between like the coloring or composition or which lens choices I'll make or whatever. But um, fortunately, I think right up from the get go, I kind of had a sense of like, oh, well, how do I want to see this thing? And it's kind of maintained itself. And so I appreciate that it's noticed that it's not bad. Well, yeah, I mean, because, you know, you can kind of see these uh, things. And when you're in this world, you kind of see, OK, here's the conventional three minute corporate piece, you know, <laughs> there's there's that or here's the conventional sort of video piece or what have you. Um, but then then there's a difference, I feel, between um, that conventional aspect and then what becomes art and and i think that's i think that's important i think a lot you know those who get to the next level uh really uh you know that that's where in my in my opinion art comes into it well i definitely want to make art and uh that's always been kind of the push is to make things that are not purely just packaged for the sake of advertising something or uh and not that there's not value to that and i've done it i was i worked as a marketing manager for two years and that was like my job is to make things look good but i would always approach it with well but does it have to just look good or can it look cool and uh <laughs> my motto is just make cool stuff so whether it's um you know promoting a nonprofit or selling a swat truck or you know a music video for a great musician like I approach it the same way. And actually I was recently talking to a new friend, uh, George Cox, who owns outpost, mm. who I think is a phenomenal uh, filmmaker in his own right. And he was telling me his approach to things. And he said, basically like, just always ask yourself, what's going to like suit the purpose of this thing. Like, how do you convey the message that's most appropriate and necessary for whatever it is that you're doing. And if that's like, okay, I'm capturing some documentary footage of, um, for example, recently I was filming uh, um, a gentleman who was hearing some audio of his uh, late wife singing mm. from like 20 years ago, but they were actually singing together. It, wow. And he had never heard it before, even though they recorded it together in an apartment that he couldn't even remember where it was, but like, I'm having to think in the moment, okay, how do I capture this so that I'm not in his face as he's experiencing this thing, but I'm also making sure that I'm getting like the emotion that he's experiencing. Wow. Like properly and making those decisions in the moment. That's the trick is like, how do you like make, and if you have time to plan it, then obviously that helps. But like a lot of what I do 
is making decisions on the fly. And I think that as long as you have it in the back of your mind, like, how do I best serve this situation? Which I think is true of all things. It's not just filmmaking, but, um, but to be cognizant of that and to like uh, maintain a, an active uh, attention to it, that's worked for me so far. And it's nice to talk to other uh, creators who then kind of echo the same thing. Now, give me the uh, quick backstory on that one. So what, tell me the setup of this gentleman hearing oh, the, okay. uh, this, so the story. There's a woman named Julia. The, the song, rather. There's a woman named Julia Greenberg who has been performing the songs of Dory Previn. And she was a famous songwriter, wrote songs for, uh, I don't want to just name names that are incorrect, but I believe she said Frank Sinatra was on the roster of people that performed her songs. So she had, you know, written, written all these classics for movies and things. And her husband was um, a stand-up comedian. His name is Joby. Um, and Julia has become interested in Dory because of performing her music and was introduced to the family. And now she's making a documentary, but she had called me uh, through a mutual friend to ask if I would help uh, capture that particular moment because they were going to Joby's house to um, show him these archival songs and he had never heard them. So it was wow. a pretty moving experience because I think Dory's been gone now for at least 10 years mm. so to like have that experience that far off to and i mean i got the chill sitting there wow. listening to it because i'm like the audio sounds like you're in the room with them and it was not uh it was like as if they were just having a lazy saturday morning and happened to be recording mm. but they're like having a conversation and then singing together and she's performing this new song that she wrote and it's just like whoa wow like it's like you're in a room with a ghost you know it's really something but um and that's actually i will say that the best part of what i've been doing for the past few years is getting the opportunity to be um involved with other people's creative ideas like a lot of what i've done has been supporting um people and their vision and uh highlighting whatever it is they're doing whether it's songs they've written or um i recently was working on a documentary out in uh south dakota about a project some friends in college um came up with to build um, affordable housing for the um, Lakota Indian tribe on wow. the Pine Ridge reservation. So like a lot of what I do is just kind of like putting the lens on like what other cool people are doing and to be included in those projects is like pretty awesome. Cause every time that I leave, I'm like, wow, it's, I'm so inspired by what people do and to be able to like help show what, what that is for other people to see seems worthwhile. Yeah, it must feel like a privilege uh, to to some extent, and then <laughs> probably puts a little pressure on you too, you know. And, and I think that's always been like, I mean, even journalists, you know, have that uh, sort of feeling of, you know, I really got to get this right, you know, for these people or this uh, this story that you know this this individual who I have this bond with. And I just really want to nail it. Um, it seems like for you, it's probably <laughs> amplified even further uh in that process well fortunately there's always editing so (laughs) 
I don't have to be constantly perfect. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> and I've definitely learned stuff where I'm like, oof, I wish I had done that differently. Uh, next time I will. Um, but fortunately, so far, I haven't made any mistakes that were so huge that it like tanked the whole project, like <laughs> deleting an entire hard drive or something. Um, yeah, those are the big mistakes. I mean, the, the, you know, I think in the, in the artistry, some of that, you know, whatever comes out is, is part of like, what's meant to be. I've always felt that way. Like, you know, even post editing and sometimes things go a little differently as to how you expected them to go. And you just kind of roll with it and you're kind of like, you know what, that works, that works, but not when you lose the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Although I want to just make a, and I'm not being paid by this software but uh there's a a software called disk drill that if you ever find yourself having accidentally deleted a lot of content off of any drive whether it's an sd card or an external or even your computer's hard drive um it is a hundred percent at least in my experience and this i've used it like 20 times effective in um in getting back all that you've deleted, which <laughs> is an important thing to know if you're in my business, because I called an IT company after I thought that I had deleted all the footage from my wife's pregnancy. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I was making a documentary <laughs> oh. or a little documentary about her being in labor. And I had hours of footage that I accidentally deleted. And the moment that I realized I'd done it, I was just stunned. Like, oh my God. Yeah. I've had that feeling, but you know, and sometimes you're like, oh, I did download it to Dropbox and, or, or or what have you. I had not, there was, it was gone. (laughs) And I was like, okay, what do I do now? I, so I called a couple of local it outfits and they were like, well, there's no guarantee that we'll be able to get it back for you. And it's going to be expensive. I'm like, how expensive are we talking? They're like thousands. It's like, Oh my God, I don't have thousands <laughs> to spend on this right now. I just had a baby. Yeah, right. I don't I have, have thousands. Diapers. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but then I found disc drill and it took like a day because I had deleted so much, but it all came back. So I'm sure that what the IT company would have done is use disk drill. Right. They would have, and and <laughs> charge you twice as much. Well, no, I paid like a hundred bucks. They were like talking like two grand. Oh man. That's so, a, that's quite a margin there. Yeah. And I love that uh, the fact that they like, were well, like, we're not, we can't guarantee it's like, well, yes, you can. They're, well, they're feeding off the desperation of exactly. <laughs> yeah. was screwed <laughs> in that case. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Oh God! Can you imagine? Ah, oh, geez, I'm sure someone, I'm someone somewhere has had that experience. I'm uh, sure, and I feel bad for them if they didn't know about disc drill. Uh, hashtag, anyway. yeah, just <laughs> love it. I love it. Um, and it's interesting because the files for video are so large. You're kind, you're in a situation where you know you're you have to unload stuff, and um, so that kind of moving of data and getting it off your hard drive uh, is just something that you got to do. You got to do. I mean, oh, yeah. Um, you should see my desk. I have literally like 15 external drives. I haven't invested yet in a RAID drive, which I need to, but like I, I should have redundant drives for like 40 terabytes, but instead I have like the the five terabyte lacy drives just like lining my entire desk and my wife's like how many of those do you have i was like look they're full okay <laughs> it's not like i'm just wasting money here like i need it a backup to the backup to the backup yeah right? <laughs> they get expensive it's like 150 bucks per drive they do yeah yeah they it, it is it is but 
worth every penny uh, when you're when you're looking for that content. And you yeah. want to make sure that it's uh, that it's there and it's safe. So um, in looking at it, um, you know, recently I saw some work uh, you did with Billy Keen. Uh, I think you've done some of his videos uh, in the past. Uh, those are pretty awesome. Well, thanks. Billy's a pleasure to work with. He's a good friend. And uh, I've done stuff for the Whiskey Treaty, um, some photography, and then also some promotional videos for shows. They did that recovered album and uh, um, they did a little movie for that as well. And I filmed the opening shots that they have the credits over. And then also, I think there's some more at the end. Um, but yeah, I love his stuff. And for a video that we recently did, um, he had played me that song a couple years ago. And I told him, I was like, I was so moved by it that I said, look, if you ever decide to make a video for that, please let me do it because I love that song. And then I don't think I saw him for a while. Um, I don't know how that all worked out, but finally he like, I, I think, think nobody saw anybody for yeah, a long right, time. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, actually I, he was one of the few people I did see because of that recovered album. Like that was the only live music I saw during the throes of COVID. I was so happy to have gone to that. Um, but anyway, so he played me a recording of that song. It wasn't done yet. And I was like, Oh, here we go. Yes. And he was like, ah, I feel like there are other songs on the album that I think would be more necessary or pressing to make a video for. And I was like, well, that's fine. If, if you need me to make one for those, uh, so that I can then make this one, I'm happy to help, <laughs> but like, I want dibs on this. So then finally, of course, he's like, uh, well, I got to do these three. Yeah, and right. Then, yeah. And then you can do. The yeah, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> no, fortunately, so far, we're only on the one. Uh, he, I think other people gave him feedback that they thought it was a good one, too. And so we got Sayer Mansfield um, to be in the video and she did an awesome job. I don't know where that video lives right now in terms of um, how he's pushing it, like currently it's kind of just in the eaves waiting for something to happen, but I, I look forward to people seeing it. And, yeah. And we'll have to, if there's a link, we'll have to put it in the description of this episode. If, uh, if it's available somewhere, I can't, so. I can't release it yet. Cause it's not mine. To uh, do it, so, yeah. but so. just know there's a Billy Keen, Justin Allen collaboration <laughs> that will eventually see the light of day. <laughs> Fantastic. You are a musician yourself and you're a damn good guitar player. Uh, a very good singer uh, as well. I don't know if you play any other instruments, but um, you, you played one time on the uh, Facebook show um, and I, I love your style. I don't even know how you describe it, but it definitely is um, uh, non-conventional. I would say, is that, that be fair? Uh, I don't know. I think it's like of the same or at least back then. And uh, for the majority of the time that I played, it was always compared to like Jack Johnson and sure. Dave Matthews, like that fusion indie, like easy listening stuff. Um, I'm playing again. I've started a project with um, Dave Brown and Chris Vecchia. Uh, so hey. we're writing songs now. And right. uh, that's been fun. Now, is Dave Brown in town or? Yeah. I see. Okay. I know. Yeah. I, sometimes I get, well, I grew up with his brother. And, um, you know, so Dave was like, 
little little guy back then and now his brother's the dj out yeah. in, in, in boston uh dj ryan i'm trying to get him on the podcast he's but, awesome uh he's he's amazing but so dave brown's in town too. yeah yeah he's uh he's been gigging he plays a lot with chris Miranda. they've got a standing date at the apple tree in lennox i think on fridays it was thursdays now it's fridays and uh if you want to talk about live music and and the area i think they're the place right now yeah. to go see something worthwhile um but yeah dave is so fun to play with uh i was taking lessons with him over the pandemic and he revealed to me something about guitar that i had never learned which i felt so stupid when i finally <laughs> figured that out. i was like oh my god i can't believe it's been like 15 years and i didn't know this but um anyway but then <laughs> what was it <laughs> so have you ever heard of the cage theory or cage method rather no so do you play guitar at a little all? yeah apparently not enough to know the cage theory though okay well <laughs> it's really basic so you know the open chord c-a-g-e-d sure. yeah. yeah well that spells out caged okay it basically like what the caged method is is understanding that all those chords are movable up and down the neck so like okay. you can play a c in the C shape mm -hmm. in that open chord, mm -hmm. but the next position where you're going to play a C would be the A shape. Right. And then the next position where you're going to play a C is the G shape. Right. And then the next is the E and then the next is the D and then it repeats back to the C. So like once you've learned all the shapes and then the corresponding scales that go with those, and then also the scale intervals for each position, then like, you know, the whole guitar, I got to know it. Oh my God. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about that. So the C and then you turn it into use an A, which mm -hmm. then if you move it down, it's like, you know, if you're on the, you know, the bar chord yeah. uh, and okay. I get, I get what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. All yeah. right. But then like, once you like see it and you also know where the root is and where the third is and where the fifth is, and then the corresponding pentatonic skill, it's like, it just, opens up it cracks wide open the whole instrument which i just feel so like cheated by previous <laughs> teachers for not having explained that i'm like oh my god everyone should know that and i've like enthusiastically shared that with several people i'm like oh my god you gotta get turned on to the cage, wait that's baby. top secret yeah right you know, you're, it's you know you're you're taking you're 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 taking guitar lessons and, and you're putting teachers out of business come on man no kidding. <laughs> well what's funny and actually i bet you can speak to this too is that uh one of the beautiful things about youtube is that content that used to be gated that you'd have to pay for yeah is free now because people realize it's not about charging money it's about getting views so if i offer value in my youtube videos yeah. like even if it turns someone into a competitive talented force they're not making the youtube videos and they're not getting the views so like it helps me even if it's information that previously was guarded right, and uh right. i think that's awesome because i'm like a you know open source kind of guy like i think the more we all are capable of the more creative we can be collectively like mm. so if everyone had you know creative genius and were capable at all things then we could just do cooler stuff right that's my philosophy on it um but i i have talked to other guitar players that were like yeah you weren't going to get a guitar teacher telling you that even though it was something that everyone knew because it would make you better fast like you right. wouldn't need lessons from them right. once you like, mean, crack that code. not to hate on guitar teachers but uh, but that's a good point i mean you put yourself out of business and you don't really want to put yourself out of business so yeah. you kind of have to get there 
incrementally if you ever get there. But that's a really amazing point. We got to, that's another link we have to do in the description of this episode somewhere, the cage method. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, there's plenty of, there's you know. <laughs> great teachers out there that explain it in great detail. So, uh, yeah, I'll find a good one and give you a link to post on this. <laughs> that's amazing. So you grew up in Pittsfield. I did. Yeah. And uh, you really have a fantastic journey uh, and, and a story to tell because, um, you know, you, you grew up, you were a graffiti artist, um, you know, you went through the schools and, you know, you ended up going to Amherst College uh, too. And, and like, it, it start me, I guess, from the beginning, um, you grew up in the Wilson Projects, right? Yeah. I think my first... Uh address was on linden street i think we lived above a car dealership if i'm correct like the one that's on the corner that's across from the corner store on the other side of the block um but then we moved into the wilson projects on memorial drive and i lived there for a while um with my mom and my older brother who was a couple years older than me and um and then she uh eventually ended up meeting my stepfather who was a professor at williams at the time and hmm. so it was funny because the dichotomy of like where i lived with my mom and then where we would spend time in his uh williams housing which was on green river road mm -hmm. uh this mansion that uh there were several apartments in and he was on like the furthest left side and it was on just this absolutely beautiful plot of land across the street from a park on green river road and uh so at a young age i was exposed to the idea that there was like drastically different ways that's really amazing because like mean, I, I, how did they meet um she was going to north adams state and she was friends with a professor that introduced her to to my stepfather um at a party, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't mm. there for it. So, mm. um, but yeah, once they were dating, uh, it just kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there were different ways of experiencing the world because uh, I was, I had grown accustomed to the fact that there were a lot of domestic disputes around and that the police were commonly in our neighborhood. And uh, it was just kind of like there was always a buzz of like tension and, you know, yeah. people not feeling too happy. Um, it was also kind of an open door community too. Like people would kind of come in and out of each other's apartments because they were all so close. And uh, I think my aunt and uncle and cousins lived uh, a handful of doors down. So we'd see them a lot too. Um, but it was, again, it was just a different experience from then going to this like idyllic uh, beautiful place on Williamstown. Right. Um, like different, like, um, you know, a different level of, of tension and not necessarily just the tension, you know, from a negative standpoint, but like, just like, just, there's a certain vibe at the projects, the Wilson projects versus maybe this kind of like, wow, it's gotta be maybe relaxing. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was peaceful. It was peaceful. Like, yeah. You didn't hear anything. You'd go outside on the like side porch there and just sit and admire the sunshine. And there was like a big um, tire swing, uh, like hanging from a tree that went over the hill. It felt like you were like in a Winnie the Pooh book and then you can go across the street and catch frogs. Like it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. Um, we were, I wasn't there that much because at that time I uh, had also started staying with my dad 
part of the time and he lived on um harvard street um off of dalton ave um yeah how far is Dalton? yeah i mean it's it, yeah it's, it's hard to tell which one i think it was dalton <laughs> but yeah. that that place was pretty dumpy because uh like it was uh next to a, a shop of some kind i was too young to like have ever explored over there but like it was also next to like a ge parking lot uh that's where my brother and i would go down and play but it like always kind of felt unsafe like you're probably stepping on glass or whatever um but yeah so it was like interesting to have this perspective and i think this has kind of followed me throughout my life of just seeing how different people live and experience things and i will never you know deny the fact that i have privilege over other people who found themselves in similarly uh difficult environments like you know the attention that i got in school um and how i was seen by other kids was different than i think it was surprising to classmates to know that i was on free lunch you know i was like oh okay cool and there was an acceptance around it i didn't feel as judged as maybe other uh peers did that were um coming up from similar environments and i think that that like the effect of that on me is that i never felt limited by being uh you know less financially uh you know having less access to financial stuff like i, I could feel it sometimes when i was growing up because there was less opportunity like i didn't go to uh nice camps or like uh, I was definitely in public school, which, you know, most all my friends were. So that wasn't a unique thing. But like uh, when it came to um, we never went on vacation anywhere. Um, if I wanted something, the only time I was going to get it would be on my birthday. And it wouldn't usually be like as nice as the thing I actually wanted. It'd be like, <laughs> you know, a crappier version of something. And so uh, but like beyond that, I didn't ever feel like I was missing out that much. But in high school, I started dating someone who came from a much uh, more to-do family. And so yeah. that, again, was like, okay, I, I see that there's another way that people approach things. Like yeah. her family was talking about her going to college and like preparing for that and like invested in her high school activities. Like she was into basketball and she was a horseback rider. So they were like always doing things to to make sure that she was succeeding at that whereas my family was like very hands-off they didn't pay much attention to what i was doing the the major concern is if i was going to ask to do something that would cost money so mm -hmm. like if i were like to bring something up like oh hey i want to be in the school play they're like oh well are we gonna have to pay for that and so there was like more of a uh just kind of like please don't do anything that's going to disrupt um, our finances. And what was, which was interesting because my stepfather, he taught at an elite college and you'd think, okay, well then wouldn't that have somehow like come into my life a little bit, but it didn't because he was wrapped up with, um, you know, the cost of the three children he had before he met my mother. So like that didn't really like yeah. bleed into my life other than that. We did end up living in a nicer neighborhood um, as I got older. So I benefited from, you know, not living on Memorial drive for my entire childhood. We did move out of there. I think when I was like 10, I wonder um, I, we, 
a lot of times, you know, I've talked about this, you know, on the podcast, how sometimes um, parents' expectations of kids can be limiting to them or it can, or it can really drive them in a certain direction because of not necessarily even overt expectations like, oh, you're going to go to college or you're going to do this or you're going to do that. Or you're going to be a doctor or whatever. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, the, the, the sense that there's an expectation of things. Um, and I, and I wonder that, um, and obviously, you know, it, going back when you're a kid, it would have been awesome probably to have parents who are a little bit more engaged, you know, I'm sure, you know, that, that would be the case, but you know, if, if there is a silver lining there, I wonder if there is a silver lining there, um, with the fact that maybe there wasn't that expectation that was on your shoulders. I can tell you, I've thought about this a lot, especially cause I'm now a father to a two-year-old, uh, girl. And I'm thinking, how will I parent? And, uh, I will agree that not having pressure to perform, um, or to do anything in particular, uh, offered a great deal of freedom and choices that I continue to make, um, are generally riskier than friends of mine (laughs) who are, you know, more concerned about how their decisions are going to be perceived by their family or that like have a more rigid sense of what the right thing to do is. I'm like, okay, well, if I want to do it and if it's the only thing that's going to like drive me to do the best that I can, then it's really the only thing that makes sense. Um, however, the flip side of that is that, and I've thought about this a great deal is that um, I've never felt uh, compelled to compete. I've never felt like it was necessary for me to stand out um, because I'm like, who cares? Like yeah. as long as I'm doing what I'm yeah. doing and I'm doing it for myself, uh, then that's enough. Like mm-hmm. I don't need for it to go anywhere. And I think as I get older and I'm like, well, no, you're in a create, you're in the creative industry. Like the only measure of your, uh, your work being meaningful is whether or not other people respond to it. And if you're not pushing yourself to make things that are going to be exposed to more people. And then you get feedback that lets you know whether or not it was good. Then like, you'll never actually know if you've done anything worthwhile. And so I'm grappling now with like having to overcome this feeling of like, I don't need to do that with saying, yes, you absolutely do. And it would have been nice for someone to have instilled that in you sooner, because especially like as a musician and as uh, now a filmmaker, like, those are industries that like you can tangibly measure your impact on how many people experience it. And I think um, that attitude of being like, yeah, it's if I perform a song for two people, it's just as meaningful as for 400 (laughs) or 10,000. And it's like, no, I mean, yeah, sure. But like, why not see how far it can go? And I think it's, um, I've even recently had that epiphany of just saying, okay, um, it doesn't matter that I don't have a cheerleading squad for my family, like whatever. And I don't have like a bunch of friends either that are like saying, oh, you're doing awesome stuff. Like keep doing it. I feel encouraged by the fact that I get hired to do stuff. So it's like, ah, well, professionally I'm being recognized as, you know, making things that are worth it. Uh, But now I'm seeing, okay, yeah, but if I want growth, if I want to really 
see who I can be in these things, then it's time to be my own cheerleader and say, I know what success looks like. I know that I need to push myself harder to experience that. And especially now that I have a child who I will always do that for, like, I'm not going to tell her what she needs to be interested in. I'll wait for her to let me know what that is. But when she is, and she's expressing that she like wants to be better at things, then I'll always be there. I hope to say, Hey, you know what? I did a little research. I figured out what the next step looks like. If you want to get better at this, like, here's what we're going to have to do. If it's gymnastics, like we got to get you a better coach. If it's, you want to be an actress, like there's camps that we can put you in for acting, like whatever it is to be like interested enough, not to force her to do anything. And if she says, I'm, you know what, that's more than I want, then I'll back off. But like to be there, at least to say, I recognize that you're like going in a direction and I want to be there to support that. And I think not having experienced that myself as an adult, I'm definitely having to do that now. I have to kind of like dig in there a little bit and be like, oh, a little young Justin, like, let me, <laughs> let me kind of like help to push you higher, you know? That so, is something that really is an interesting, amazing perspective because, um, because it is, I mean, because as, as we evolve, it's almost like you said, like the, the competition thing, you know, I think as people get older, because we're so, I mean, we're in a competitive culture. I mean, so it's it's really it's really a piece of a lot of of who we are when we grow up, whether it's sports or what you know, education. You know, you want to be the first in the class or or whatever. But when you realize that some of a lot of that doesn't matter, and it's about your happiness and joy, and really that's that's you know that's how you win in life. You know, is is to actually truly deeply be happy. Um, but then having that balance to realize that part of that is being able to engross yourself in certain activities and, and, and so forth and being able to instill that in your children is really, really interesting because you know the last thing you want, of course, is a child who has a passion and they want to do something that may not be the most um, profitable thing or, or the most you know the, the biggest income choice or, or what have you. And then to turn them away from that. And I think, or have them feel as though they can't go in that direction because of the expectation of, of parents. I, I just, this is, this is really important stuff. And, you know, as we're raising, we're all, we're raising children and we're having these uh, conversations and how to do it. It's, it's, some of this is really subtle stuff, but powerful, powerful. Yeah. And I think that the other piece of it that I want to like, you know, push again in myself, but then also hopefully to be a role model for my daughter is that the competitive part really isn't that important anyway. It's more that like, do you want to do it at yeah. a bigger scale? Like if you wanted to be an Olympic uh, snowboarder, like it's not going to be good enough to uh, to just go to Bosque a couple <laughs> times a month and that's it and hang out with your friends. Like if you want to see what it's like to experience the sport at that level. And again, that doesn't need to be about competition. That's purely about wanting to have like bigger and more interesting experiences Then you need to push yourself. And I think that's true of everything. And like, I know 
that I've had a lot of fun making music videos and learning the technical side of how to use the equipment and stuff and like understanding like, Oh, if I want to do this, I have to have that. And like, now I understand if I want to do this, I have to work with a team that's going to like be able to actually achieve that. And, um, and I will say that despite having, you know, a lack of support perhaps from uh, the adults in my life that I have had a tremendous amount of like um, serendipitous opportunity. And I can't ignore that. Like uh, pretty much any time I've decided like, this is what I'd like to do. Like a door is just like, Oh, here you go. Go on through. And uh, I don't know that that happens for everybody. I will say that the pattern I've noticed is that like when I truly decide this is what I want to do, that's when it happens because um, there are plenty of things that we tell ourselves like, yeah, it'd be nice if I could do this or one day I'd like to do that. But when I've been like, damn it, now's the time, like things, it's like magic. Like, for example, uh, I got to work on the Crudson um, photo project last fall. And I had just purchased a new camera lens and I was looking on uh, Google, just trying to figure out which photographers use this particular focal length. And I was like, you know, Crudson's photos are pretty wide. I wonder if he uses this focal length. So I'm looking at some of his pictures online. I'm like, man, I know he's based in the Berkshires. I wonder if I'll ever get the opportunity to work with him. Anyway, whatever, continue my night. The next day I get a phone call out of the blue, would you be interested in being the production manager, which is basically the assistant director for the next Crudson? <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding me. This, this stuff works. This I was like, works. what? That is the weirdest thing in the world. This is totally unsolicited. I'm just getting a phone call out of nowhere. I don't even know why they would think I was qualified to do that. And yet I did it. It was the five week experience and it was, I learned a ton and I met some people that, uh, I've maintained relationships with that I think will be uh, really helpful moving forward. And hopefully I'm adding value to things they're doing. And I know they certainly are doing that for me. And um, I don't know, it's just kind of crazy how, how that works. But sometimes when I'm feeling a little down about like, Oh, things haven't worked in a certain direction. I'm like, yeah, but when, when, when I want to make steps, up it seems that like the world is kind of i mean that's how it was with amherst it's like uh getting into that school uh was kind of nuts i had lived in amherst uh years before i would drive by the school every day thinking man how nice it would be to have that experience and then you know next thing i know a few years later i'm i'm a student there and uh, I won't say that it was like I didn't put effort in to like have that happen, but you know, plenty of people put in effort for things and they don't end up happening. So like I count myself lucky uh, in in that way. That it seems like the, the universe, if not my parents, uh, seems to periodically step in and say, "Here, let's support you and what you want to do." It. Uh- you're pretty good at manifesting. Uh, yeah. As far and, you know, the decision, you know, to, to make a decision, and don't mean to really make a decision. You know, to, how they say, like, just sort of getting on shore and 
burning the ships behind you. Like there's no, there's, that's a true decision. Like, you know, (laughs) you may not know what's ahead, but you're not going back there. Um, It's powerful and it's not easy. You know, we, we like to say things like, oh, make the decision. But when you really truly do it, it's, it's a, that commitment and, and, and universe really responds to that. It does. I mean, and I've seen it happen for other people too. And I think the beauty of, of watching other people's lives, especially creative people, because they're the ones that I'm drawn to the most as friends. It's not that like I shun anyone else. It's just that we happen to like interact, but like I've watched people who have said, okay, I, you know, usually it's some traumatic moment that pushes people that are creative to do to make some change it's like ah i have to (laughs) i don't have a choice life is kind of pushing me away from where i was and now i have to go somewhere else um but i have watched people who like generally are not motivated by money they're just motivated by the art of whatever it is they're doing and then when they commit to it it like grows into something beyond what they could have imagined it would become and then suddenly they're being recognized for it as they're you know, main achievement in life. And I think that is so cool, but again, it's having to make that decision of, Hey, I'm confident enough in myself to devote my time to this. I don't question whether or not it's worth it. I just do it because that's what I feel compelled to do. And then because of that motivation, like it takes on this, uniqueness that then is celebrated and i think i'm looking for that in my life i'm trying to figure out like what exactly i can be known for um and i'm becoming you know known around here as a resource for uh making polished video and Mm -hmm. that's cool i like that but i i'm definitely in a period of growth i've been like writing short screenplays things that i know that i could actually accomplish uh without having a giant budget and so this year i'm devoting to uh producing a few things that hopefully will be you know launching off to bigger projects but i know that in order to develop a voice in this lane that i'm in i just need to start small so that's the plan for this year But I would encourage anybody who's, you know, like looking at something that they want to pursue to just say, okay, there's no reason to wait on that. Especially in 2022, because, you know, if, if you're going to write a book, no publisher is going to tell you not to write a book. You know, yeah. if you're going to produce a video, well, there's more resources uh, available for filmmakers than there ever has been in the history of the world, uh, you yeah. know, so like there's nothing really stopping you. I mean, yeah, there's some equipment, <laughs> um, you know, obviously uh, in some cases, but um, but, you know, basically the avenues are there for independent uh, creation and sure is it good to have a publisher is it good to have a big uh, uh, production company supporting you yes or not necessarily honestly when it comes to creative independence and what's crazy is that you pull the curtain back like everybody around here is like oh man this community there's not that many opportunities blah 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 it's like yeah but there are I mean there are plenty of people who no matter what it is that you're interested in, like are experts in that. I mean, 
just in this past year, I have discovered that there are feature films being made in the Berkshires. I mean, fortunately, we're lucky that right now uh, the state has incentivized filmmakers by giving a tax credit for projects that are made in Massachusetts. And so that's attracted at least the most recent project I worked on. And I think that's going to be the wave of the future. But there's like a team of people that I've now worked with three times on three different movies that all live fairly close. Um, some of whom are coming from other parts of the country, but like that are now attached to this area. So filmmaking, for example, if you want to make a film, like you don't have to be in California to do that. You don't have to think like, Oh, I, I don't know how I'll get the equipment because you can rent it. So again, I think the one thing that we all need to uh, be aware of is just that things that we dream about are usually not as unattainable as we, we think they are. Like we just got to start looking in the right places and meeting the what do, right what people. What do you think dreams are? What do you think dreams are? Uh, <laughs> what do gonna, I think dreams I'm, are? We're going we're to get a hard left turn here. Like uh, actual dreams? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. I've heard a lot of theories, but I, I find I find I learn a lot about someone when, when I ask a, a question like that. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if you're going to be prepared for how long this answer is going to be. <laughs> no, go. Hey, listen. Post editing. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the. Just so you know, this uh, this segment was thirty minutes. <laughs> now it's two. Uh, um, no, I'll I'll make this brief. I studied psychology in college, and I was really interested in like metaphysical stuff. And um, before I went there, and then I studied philosophy as well, and left like a nihilist. But um, anyway one of the things I thought was really interesting was uh, Freud and Jung's interpretation of dreaming. Mm -hmm. And I got really interested in like tracking my own dreams for a while. Cause I was like, okay. So basically their thought is that like all of your dream content is representative of uh, experiences that you have in your waking life, but that they're so veiled that you really have to put in effort to understand what they're representing. And, but the gist of it is that you're like processing your experiences through your dreams. Um, and I came across somewhere this technique of right before you fell asleep to just relive your day backwards from the last thing you did, like getting into bed or brushing your teeth or taking a shower or whatever it was, like all the way back to when you woke up. And I'd often fall asleep before I got totally back to like the beginning of the day, but what it gave me an opportunity to do is revisit each experience and remember how it made me feel. Cause there are so many things that we kind of like have happened. And then we move on. Like you you're in the coffee shop and you see someone, you know, but you have a, a moment of remembering the last time you saw them and they like said something rude or like, uh, or you had a lot of fun with them, but like, then you're off to the next thing. So you, like you had a, an emotional response to that meeting, but you didn't deal with it. You like just carried on with your day. And I mm -hmm. think that dreams are like an opportunity to deal with it. And so if you do this exercise of going through all those things and dealing with it before you sleep, and say, oh yeah, I felt kind of uncomfortable or I felt really happy or whatever. And it made me think of this other thing. And so then you're kind of like following the roots of your own thoughts for a moment. Um, 
what it did for me over time, it seemed anyways to free up my dreaming. So like I then started lucid dreaming regularly and Mm. I attribute that to like just having created space to not have to like process this latent emotional content just and then i get up in the morning and and write down my dreams which really helped because i even now i don't i haven't been doing this dream work for a couple of years and so i don't remember most of my dreams anymore i'll wake up and if i did dream it'll just be gone <laughs> in a second but if you get in the habit well, kid, of uh, them down, having a kid will uh kind of put a damper on that sometimes you know it's not it's not the kid that does it, <laughs> it isn't. it's the dogs it's like <laughs> Having a dog barking in your face is like, oh, forget the dream. I just got to let you out. <laughs> Leave me alone. You know, you hear a lot um, from people who talk about that middle time between oh, uh, being you know, completely awake uh, to sleep. And then that between time, that sort of you're just, just under consciousness, you know, not fully unconscious, but in that area, it seems to be a magic time where there is an opportunity. A lot of people talk about, okay, this is where you should really roll out your intentions. You should talk about how, you know, how happy you are with life and how grateful you are. And, you know, I'm hoping to create my most optimal timeline or whatever, all these things, but like, you know, but it seems to be a little bit of consistency there that that time just before you go to sleep and that time just after you wake up where you're just not really quite awake um, it's kind of a magic opportunity there. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird time. Like, it's a weird time. <laughs> it's like a subconscious, like strange time where you're like, oh, I mean, I think it's always funny when you wake up from a dream, but you don't fully accept that you're awake and you're like, was what I was just dreaming about real? Like, I mean, I, I've talked to Ed, recently, I was talking to a producer on this project that I was just on and we were chatting about like, common dreams and we were talking about like uh apparently we both experienced this of like waking up thinking or having dreams where you realize that you've like killed many people and you're like (laughs) i'm gonna go to jail for so long i have to now evade the police because if they find me i'm going away forever or also like the dream of like you've just done a whole semester of school but you didn't go to a particular class and now today's the final and you're like i'm gonna have to like fail this and then i owe money and i also have to take the course again i'm not going to graduate and it's weird i have this dream all the time that i'm back in high school and i'm like i've already graduated college like why am i here (laughs) i can just get up and leave i don't need to do this it is or if you're like um you know you distance runners out there or runners out there you'll probably have dreams that oh my god the race is starting i don't have my shoes on yet and i'm trying to get going and the race has started and i haven't even gotten my shoes on yet and uh you know and, and i keep getting lost on the trail or wherever i am yeah uh, so you, that that seems to be really really common maybe based in maybe so deep held fears or or something but um but that's kind of a common thing yeah. probably yeah. that lack of preparedness yeah, yeah across you know i'm sure we all are worried about that like it's like oh am i prepared for work today like do i have my notes did i do the assignment like and I, I that i'm sure is ubiquitous it doesn't matter what you're doing but like uh what made me think of that was just when you're talking about that kind of twilight period where you're not fully asleep and you're not fully awake either for those dreams of having been on a murderous rampage i've woken up and been like oh i didn't 
do that, right? Uh, <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> man, that would suck if I did. I get to be free another day. Yeah. Super. Uh, so you spent time in New Zealand. I did. That that how did you end up there? Well, that feels like another manifested thing too, because uh I actually had lived in Asheville, North Carolina for a little while back in 2010. And while I was there, I lived with a couple, um, one of whom was a Waldorf teacher and the other was a yoga teacher, which is very common down in Asheville at that time. You were always meeting healers and people interested in alternative uh, education. Do you find that more and more? I mean, even I, certainly in the Berkshires, we have our fair share. I would, I would think, but, um, but I feel like that's uh, much more common. You see more of those healer yoga people around, probably everywhere, not just the Berkshires. I think it's probably up and coming areas where people are like on the new age bent. I think Asheville's changed a lot since I lived there because I went back a few years ago and I talked to some people that were living there and they're like, yeah, it's so much more expensive now. Mm. So like when it's in that like transitional period where it's you can have people that uh, don't need to earn a lot of money. They can work at the grocery store while they're figuring out what, how they're going to make their Reiki business succeed or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, or they're like, they're <laughs> crystal business um <laughs> not to this we love our reiki and we're crystal exactly people. Just yes. fyi just, yeah. you know. <laughs> but they're not traditionally that lucrative so if you figured out how to really make a lot of, from that great um but anyway so yeah there was definitely a lot of that a lot of permaculture a lot of like all kinds of stuff but when i was there my roommates had gone to new zealand and they had a photo album um and I got interested in Waldorf education while I was down there too. I started reading a lot of Rudolf Steiner stuff and um, I thought his ideas for education were interesting. So I was thinking maybe I'll become a Waldorf teacher myself. And um, that was part of the incentive of, as to why I went back to college. Um, and, but, and real quick, un unpack this for us a little bit, the, the Waldorf uh, concept. I mean, a lot of people may not, and, and, and I don't know exactly what it is, so sure. tell me. <laughs> okay, so I it's been a long time since I've thought about this, but um, basically what I thought was interesting about it was that uh, Rudolf Steiner had noticed that there are different developmental um, stages come with a person's physical and emotional development at specific ages, which I think was actually ended up being one of the reasons I became disinterested in it because I think that things have evolved since he wrote that and that there was a rigidness to hmm. the method that hadn't evolved with the times. But um, anyway, but he had different ways of responding to those uh, stages and saying, well, maybe it's not appropriate to teach someone certain things until they've reached a certain age. And some of those timelines were different than traditional public education, but he also had ideas that students should be learning about farming and like be outside for a good portion of the day. And that, uh, it's a good idea. Though. He was like, <laughs> talked about how, uh, when students first sat down in class, they were having back issues. So then there were like ergonomic changes to the furniture so that like kid could sit in a chair for longer without it causing like skeletal problems because they're developing. And he was like, you know, 
it's not that they need to make better chairs. It's that the kids shouldn't be sitting down for that long. Mm. So they would incorporate movement into a lot of the curriculum too. And I actually shadowed down at the um, Waldorf school in great Barrington for an afternoon. Cause I was like, if I'm going to do this, I really should like see what it looks like. And I thought that was really cool that they, they do include movement and the kids kind of throughout the day have a routine of like uh, different things that get them up and out of their seats. And then they're out of the classroom. And that was great. And it was definitely different than my education. Um, and one of the things that I think is really cool. And I think for any parent out there, that's like, going to teach their kids geography uh one thing i learned from the waldorf method was like if you're going to teach your kids about their place in the community like you can map out your own house you can say okay yeah here this is the living room here's the kitchen but then you like scale up so it's like first you start with your house or even maybe their room whatever then you're like okay now we'll learn about the house now we learn about our house relative to the rest of the neighborhood. Now we learn the neighborhood, rest of the town, town to the county, county to state, so that like you're giving them context at each step, uh, so that they're learning and expanding their like idea of place until you've encompassed the whole universe. I mean, like <laughs> at eventually, but like to structure things in a way where it's step by step by step, but always giving them more access to like. Uh, more information that's relevant to them. You know, that's just one thing. But again, it gets a little wacky. Like if you get into Steiner's teachings, they start to become pretty out there. Like he talks about having access to the Akashic records, which are, you know what that is? Yeah. Sure. So yeah. And like <laughs> you can explain that to people. Oh, uh, it's <laughs> basically like a library, like a spiritual library where you can learn and see anything. Um just through meditation or something right which, like all like all ideas or things that have been thought forever and right. it all goes into it you know which is really interesting do you meditate i haven't been as much as i used to um only because having a young child has made it so that like while i'm sitting there trying to meditate i'm often thinking like i should be doing the dishes because <laughs> she's taking a nap you know <laughs> it's so true man it's so <laughs> it's so true oh my goodness um so so in new but oh yeah so new, new zealand. zealand yeah right sorry we've deviated <laughs> the hell were you doing in new zealand yeah okay so <laughs> right so I, I was looking at waldorf teaching uh schools throughout the world because it's a global teaching method and i found one in new zealand so i was like all right i'm gonna go back to school uh, it only they only require an associate's degree to then do this teacher training. So I'll go to BCC for two years, and I knew that if I tried to go to school down in North Carolina, it was going to cost too much. So that's why I came back to Massachusetts because I was like, "Oh, do in-state tuition; it'll be cheaper." And then I'll move to New Zealand um, and do this teacher training. But then while I was at BCC, I was like, "Yeah, maybe I want to get a." bachelor's degree so then i started trying to figure out where i could go that i wouldn't have to pay to go and i remember talking to my transfer counselor and he was like well if your grades are good enough and at that point i had like a 4.0 he was like you can apply to these you know elite schools and they have such good financial aid uh because they're so well endowed that you know they have need blind acceptance and then they'll pay whatever you can't afford and at that point i was 
financially independent of my parents because I was like 24. And um, so I was like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. And initially I talked to, talked to Gina Coleman because she used to work up at Williams. And, sure. I, yeah. and I was like, hey, uh, like, what do you think about me getting my, my application on your desk? And she was like, oh, go for it. But then I did a little research and found out that uh, they didn't have much of a transfer community. So I would have been like one of two older students that went. So I was like, okay, that's not as appealing as Amherst. And at the time I had a girlfriend that was um, living in Pittsfield with me. So I was trying to stay close. And uh, anyway, so I ended up applying there and got in, but long story short, the way that I got to New Zealand was that I ended up doing a study abroad semester and the Amherst paid for that. Like I didn't spend a dime, although it was, if you don't mind me telling you this story, it was like, <laughs> this kind of also goes back to like my relationship with my parents because um, I got in, everything's taken care of. They're like, good for you. That's what we always wanted you to do. And I'm like, of course it is like, <laughs> we knew you could do it. It's like, sure. Yeah, cool. But then uh, when I, I reminded me of the Johnny cash song, a boy named Sue, you yeah. know, like, you know, I mean, not that, it's your life, I but it it's just kind of it, it it makes me you know hey you know new life was gonna be tough for you yeah so we you know we sent you out and we knew you could do it yeah <laughs> that's always been the response it's like whenever I've succeeded at things it's like oh yeah we we knew it was gonna happen <laughs> wait what was it that you did again um, but anyway uh, so when I decided to go to New Zealand um, and got that opportunity um, the school was like all right great. And I guess I got my wires crossed and I thought that they were like, okay, well, just focus on getting um, everything like with the program squared away and you can worry about the visa stuff later, like just get your tickets and everything. And I was like, okay, so I did that. And then it was about to be finals. And I was like, man, I haven't got my visa yet. And it's like almost Christmas. I'm supposed to leave the country on January 10th. Um, I should probably get that visa. So then I like, <laughs> yeah, that would help. Right? Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, what, what, what do I need to do to do this? And then I went down to the, um, study abroad office and they're like, you haven't done that yet. I'm like, no, they're like, you should. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well I'll get on that right away. But I was also studying for finals and I will say that Amherst is a hard school. So it was like, a pretty challenging yeah. thing to try to do that and anything else. Some bowl of cherries uh, doing finals at Amherst. Yeah, yeah. It's, it sucks. Um, <laughs> but I remember calling um, to figure out what I needed to do. And I talked to the uh, New Zealand embassy and they were like, look, normally this takes like 10 weeks. And uh, that's when we're not going to be closed for Christmas and New Year's. <laughs> so like, you're pretty much screwed. And I'm like, no, there's no way that I can be screwed. There's no, like, uh-huh. I have to get there for this. Cause the first leg of my trip was like traveling throughout the, um, the Pacific or the, uh, cook islands rather. And, um, uh, if I missed that, it would have been part of the course. Cause I went on this earth systems thing. So I, w- I don't even know if I would have made it up, but it was also like a super great opportunity. So I call my parents and I'm like, can you please help me figure this visa situation out? Like, I don't know what to do. And um, 
like I'm so busy right now. Like I could use a hand and they're like, well, we've never gotten visas before. And I'm like, okay, well, neither have I. So we're in the same starting point and you have more time than I do. So like, could you at least try to help? And they're like, well, we just don't know what to do. And I'm like, okay. So by some miracle, like I just called and called and called until I got in touch with this one guy, John at the New Zealand embassy, like two days before I'm supposed to leave. And he's like, if you can drive down here, like I'll give you your, your visa. And I was like, <gasps> so I just hopped in the car, drove 10 hours to Washington DC uh, with a friend of mine and then got the visa. And then like a day later I was boarding a plane to, uh, to, to go on this trip. But like, that was the most anxiety inducing, uh, like <laughs> he got three the weeks of my life. I was like, cause <laughs> I couldn't even call them over the winter break. Cause they were not there. So I was just like twiddling my thumbs. Like, I hope this is going to work. I really do. I hope this is going to work. This better work. <laughs> the man got to New Zealand. There, yeah. there, was, there was nothing that was going to stop you. You would not be denied. Well, so, I, 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 I didn't made, want to be denied. Serendipitous. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, something, something happened. I met know? my wife Tell, there. That was awesome. Tell me about your wife. Well, how did you meet her? Um, so I, <laughs> I got there and, um, because I was an older student, um, once we made it to the mainland, uh, New Zealand and we were in Christchurch where I stayed for the majority of the time, that's where the university was. Um, they, put me in housing with grad students because um, just, I guess it was more appropriate since I was like 26 or something at that point. And um, I had four roommates. One guy was from Fiji. Another guy was from Tonga. And then uh, my friend Sandeep was from, from Mumbai. And then Tim, uh, he was a Kiwi. So I became friends with Sandy pretty quickly. He's such an interesting guy. He's uh, um, his family owns a, an air conditioner company in Mumbai. So he had never wanted for anything, never had cooked for himself, never had like washed his own clothes. So when he decided to come to New Zealand, like he's suddenly in a position where he has to learn to do all that stuff. <laughs> so I distinctly remember a day of like having to tell him that you don't stick a fork into the, uh, into the toaster uh <laughs> but like he just was like a nap man i can't it's amazing because you, you're like well it's gonna be a culture shock because i'm going to new zealand but then you have this situation with sandeep who grew up like you can't even think of a, a more different upbringing uh, right. than, than sandeep and and justin yeah but yet we became like really fast friends. I mean, like there's a lot of the same cultural access, uh, you know, in developed country cities uh, or developing country cities. Like I've been to Shanghai now and like my parents have this conception about China that it's like all rural and like rice patties. And uh, I'm like, Shanghai has got 25 million people and it's like more high tech than New York city. Like it's, got things that I've never seen before that are like absolutely incredible. And the way, the way that my parents would talk to my wife sometimes is like that. She just was just this like rural. And I'm like, she was a lawyer in Shanghai. <laughs> but anyway, so my, through my friendship with Tim and Sandeep um, at I 98, which was our apartment, uh, I met my wife because she was good friends with both of them. And she would sometimes come to, uh, to, walk sandeep to class 
because he otherwise he would just stay in bed. So uh, <laughs> I remember one During day those college days. I mean, you know, it, it, it was so funny how oh, people and, and you're like, how did people get by? Sometimes you're like this. I never see this person in class. I have the time. I don't see him on a bed, but you know, <laughs> yeah. so I mean, and somehow he's, I guess, passing. I don't know. But anyway, I, I digress a little bit, but, yeah. but this is how you met your wife. Yeah. So she was like <laughs> kicking him out of his bed, like literally like get the hell out of bed. And I was like, Oh man, woman after my own heart. Uh, so, and then they did something weird in their business program where like, if you met anybody that was tangentially connected to anyone in the program, they would like then friend you on Facebook, uh, which I was like, okay, yeah, we met that one time. Cool. So she friended me on Facebook and, uh, I saw that she was like posting pictures of, um, of wontons that she had made. And I was cooking for myself all the time. So I was like, Ooh, it'd be cool to learn how to make some wontons. <laughs> so I like reached out to her. I was like, Hey, would you be interested in like teaching me how to make some wontons? And, uh, I thought it was going to be like a, just her and I thing. And, uh, then I come home to my apartment and both of my roommates, uh, Sandeep and Tim are there making wontons. They're already like halfway through the process. Her friend, uh was also there with her daughter like so it's like a wonton making party and i showed up late so i didn't <laughs> learn anything other than how to like fold the thing but i was like oh okay i guess i can at least eat them that's gonna be fun did you learn have you learned since then uh yeah she showed me um well, we haven't done that together in a while and i subsequently found out that i have celiac so Oh, we haven't found a good gluten-free sub or a wrap substitute. So hmm. I haven't had them in a long time, but um, yeah, so we met there and, uh, and when, when I had to leave and come back to finish school at Amherst, um, I knew that I wanted to be, go back there. So um, I convinced the program that I went on to hire me to come back. And um, that first leg of the trip, like I said, we were going through other places in New Zealand, uh, that's what I got hired to do. So I came back for another five weeks of traveling with this uh, program and I cooked for 30 people for a month. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, that was crazy, but it allowed me to come back and they paid for my flight and uh, the, I got a little money to, to leave with. But the plan was that we were just going to stay in New Zealand because I didn't have any intention of coming back permanently. I was like, and you had your visa. Well, I, I yeah, I had. Well, I didn't have a working visa at that point. Um, oh, I see. So I could have gotten one, and she could have gotten one too. She had already had offers to work as an accountant in New Zealand. And your wife's name? Her name is Shinua, but everyone calls her Cheryl. Cheryl. Okay. Um, but anyway, so then. I don't know if you remember this, but I had that t-shirt company Pangolin. Um, no, I, no. I, I should remember. Anyway, I should remember. So Tell me about the it, t-shirt it, In college, I had started a t-shirt company that was raising money for endangered animals. Okay. And uh, I had planned a trip around the US for after when I graduated because uh, I knew when I was in New Zealand, I was like, man, I've seen so much of this country and I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I want to live here forever, but I haven't seen that much of the US. Like I've lived in California briefly and I've been to Asheville, but beyond that, I hadn't seen enough to really decide to leave forever. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go on this trip to promote my company at different colleges throughout the U S and that way I can see different places and decide if it 
really make sense for me to leave. And so that's one way to do it. Yeah. So I, <laughs> that, that's really a pretty innovative way of, of going out and seeing the rest of the country, uh, you know, making yeah. a t-shirt company didn't work out <laughs> exactly that way. Like my, so after this, like going back to New Zealand, um, I had planned the trip around the U S in March. So, uh, we came or I was going to come back, do this trip and then go back to New Zealand again and maybe stay there forever. But then my wife was like, and we weren't married at that point. She was like, well, I want to do this trip with you. And I was like, I feel like as a newly minted couple that maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, <laughs> but she convinced me. And so well, it can make you or I mean, you might as well figure it out. Right. Whether, yeah. you know, because if you go and you, and you do the thing alone. Okay. But then who, who knows what happens, but you know, as a couple, you do that together. It's it, you know, you know, you're gonna either make it or break it, right? So, or or it breaks you and you keep going, as you know. Or yeah, <laughs> we definitely get, we're broken on that trip. <laughs> uh, not, I mean, obviously not broken up, but like I think uh, it, it had moments of feeling like we were both a little broken. Um, but we, oh no, no, I, it's all but, good, but you broke together and then you sure you know yeah i guess i don't I think know we might or... have broke separately and then <laughs> helps each other come back together but what ended up happening is that we uh found ourselves out in la visiting um pomona college and doing a little festival there and setting up the t-shirt thing and uh and then realizing like man we don't have any more money uh we have run out of money which was part of the reason I didn't want to do it together because I I was like, I think it's going to be really expensive. And she was like, I'm going to sell my car. She came to the U.S. Wow. With zero dollars. So I ended up spending everything I had on this trip. And then we're out in, in L.A. with nothing. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess the only option now is to go back to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. everything happens the way it happens yeah and, I, I don't and, that, and that's okay it. because yeah. you know, just, yeah but we ended up back in pittsfield and with no money and uh like not even enough for her to have a flight back to new zealand or to, to <laughs> and you're China like where she's from I, thank god i guess yeah. she may have gone back and never come exactly <laughs> never come back. yeah and so <laughs> she wasn't didn't have a work visa right away so the only thing that she did for money was uh she baked for Dottie's and then she made the desserts for district and public uh because she's an excellent baker yeah well there like so she's a so she's an attorney she was an attorney in shanghai and and but she can bake yeah and she's also an accountant now she's the uh a, a town accountant here in uh berkshire county um and uh and you know i ended up working at the bar at methuselah for a while and that was really fun um it wasn't exactly what I thought I'd be doing when I came back, but it was a great time and uh, I wouldn't change that for anything. And then in that time, I figured out that I liked photography and, and doing video stuff. And now years later, here I am. And I think the new goal, like, although I've learned not to make serious plans because they always morph into something different, but uh, I would love to move back to New Zealand because um, my daughter being half Chinese, uh there's really not a chinese community around here and uh 
where, where we lived in Christchurch, there was, there was like an extensive part of the city that was a lot of Chinese people. And I would also like for my parents-in-law to be able to live with us because, uh, you know, with the one child policy, the, their family is really just them and uh, my wife and now our daughter. Right. And they're right. actually staying with us right now in Lee. Um, oh, been, okay. Yeah. They managed to get here right before Shanghai shut down again. Um, so I'm grateful that they're with us because they finally get to spend time with our daughter. But um, I'd like for them to live with us permanently. And right now, because they don't speak English, they're just bored out of their minds. Like there's nothing to do, you know, like they're just kind of sitting. We had a, a party for my daughter turning two, and I felt so bad for them because they were kind of just like standing around watching everyone. And we had lots of people at our house and uh, they were just kind of like, Oh gosh. And I can't imagine. I mean, I, I've been in that situation while I was in China feeling that way. So I, I can only imagine how it must feel for them too. But um, anyway, so yeah, that's how I met my wife. That's the time I spent <laughs> in New Zealand. <laughs> that man, you got some stories to tell. Yeah, some stories to tell. Sorry, if I, you gave me this currency coffee. I just can't stop. That's the official coffee, I guess, of uh, of, our, of our podcast. Um, I I think that um, it's amazing that um, you know everything that you've gone through and how that must inform how you approach. I mean, just everything. I guess fatherhood, you know, to me, that's like the biggest responsibility that that you kind of have because you only get really one shot at it. You know, if you <laughs> if you if you screw up in business or you know, uh, or even in some relationships, uh, that's that's a thing. But uh, but I, I think you can sort of manage through that. Like when you know, raising kids and uh, and having a child. You don't really want to screw that up, and um, you know. But I, I think that the deeper our backgrounds are, you know, you, me, anybody, um, it really, it really is is super helpful um, in that. So I, you know, I mean, if you go back to New Zealand, you know, that's 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 a that's a good thing. But um, but either way, I think you know, having that balance uh, as parents, um, it's really. I I I feel like um, that's a really great place to be. Uh, you know, especially with your your upbringing and so forth, I, 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 you must be having fun. Oh yeah, being a dad's great. I mean, it was weird having a kid during COVID, and uh, I won't say that it wasn't hard to be a first time parent during that. But I think it's probably hard no matter what time in your life you have a child. It's just an adjustment. And uh, as the days go on, she is just getting so much more fun and like. How old is Adorable. she? Now? She's turning two on Thursday. So, <laughs> so it's only going to get more fun. Yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, just how uh, engaging she is now, and she can't even speak that well yet. I mean, she has a handful of words, but she clearly understands. Like, uh, I can ask her to do something and she'll do it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, or like, you know, she'll point to things and, like, it's very obvious that the communication is possible. It's just that she's stuck on, you know, dada, mama, uh, and the few words that she has for other things. Um, but she likes to just say dada over and over again. And I was like thinking to myself the other day, man, it's like an alarm clock. Like it, it never ends. Uh, but then I thought, yes, but there'll be a moment where it stops and you'll wish it didn't. So just like 
accept that you've got this incessant dada sound coming your way for as long as it it does continue yeah it's pretty awesome there really is nothing like parenthood it really is a wonderful wonderful thing and and uh, every moment they say you know how many times have you heard and you will hear you know enjoy every moment you know and all that and then you know sometimes you're like oh jesus i, you know, I just wish you just go to sleep so i can <laughs> so we can have some free time you know there, there there's that too and and um but uh but at the end of the day yeah it's um every every moment is wonderful it really is even though, even when it's not so wonderful because uh, because you only get it for so long. I gotta ask you. So you're a father. You're an accomplished host of of many shows <laughs> over the years. You've been a politician, and I've heard through the rumor mill that you might be having your sights on a. Uh, a more substantial position in the community and i wondered if there was truth to that by the way this is not <laughs> and i didn't know he was going to be asking this by the way <laughs> yeah i told him i had a question loaded but i didn't say what it was uh so i guess i'm curious to know uh if, if that rumor has any truth to it yeah well it's not it's not really uh, a rumor um i'm kind of open about it i guess it, it, you know if if everything is where i need to have it, uh, I would definitely run. I mean, there's a mayor's race next year. I mean, just so people know, it's in 2023. So um, absolutely, I am looking forward to that possibility uh, of running. Um, you know, I mean, ev- everything in life, never mind everything in politics, is about timing. And, you know, I had a chance to run in 2015, and it just wasn't the time, you know, family constraints and, and so forth at that point. Um, you know, I, I think you know we're kind of at a point in the city where I think we need a so we we need a bit of a you know another shot of adrenaline. I think you know what I'm saying. So um, I think if I have the opportunity, and, and some of that is just has to do with you know just being situated and and making sure everyone is on board and family and that sort of thing. But um, but there's a solid understanding I think among my family. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people who are close to me. Um, that uh, that's the direction that I would like to go. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's it's not really it's, it's not so much a rumor. It's more just you know I will do it if I'm able to and 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 if it's right. Well, if you need help with campaign materials, <laughs> I'd be happy to lend a hand. Uh, and what I was thinking on the way here uh, was that this exercise of being an active listener uh to you know different people in the community um and obviously by doing that showing that you're like interested in in what they have to say uh and i was thinking like i can't remember the last time that i've had an in-depth conversation purely about me uh i actually don't know if that's ever happened (laughs) so uh this is like kind of a gift for me to be able to share about myself but like to have someone who would be you know a leader in a community that has that investment to know the people that live here that are doing things and uh that are participating and and would likely be the people that you might call to like get things done when it seems necessary and knowing who those people are like oh if i want to accomplish this and like 
put on this event or like uh, convince people in this area that this is a good idea or whatever it is like to have that Rolodex and to have done kind of this legwork of like getting to know all these different sides of the Pittsfield or Berkshire County story. Like, I think that's really cool. So yeah. um, I appreciate that. I, I, I really, I really do uh, Justin. And um, I, 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 by the way, I just love doing this. I, this is, I, I kind of grew up in my, professional life just doing this and it it's i love stories i love i love hearing about i mean <laughs> new zealand stories i love hearing about your interpretation of dreams <laughs> you know uh, with all apologies to freud um and, and the rest uh, but uh young and but you know i it's it's just kind of like a part of me but i i do there's a great point that that you raise because i think in community leadership or politics or what have you i think listening is the most underrated skill or just trait that there is i mean you hear a lot of talking from community leaders you hear a lot uh, of talk um but uh, but I, I think we all gain by listening about 10 times as much as we really do um in 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 normal settings i just i just think i mean plus we also live in a world where like we we don't listen we're like we're like in in a place where we're just always waiting for your opportunity <laughs> you're waiting for someone to stop so then you can talk you know and and you see that a lot um so i don't know i i i think you know that comes with maturity also i think i think you know to 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 really really just uh, breathe it all in and understand that people do have perspectives and they are real and it doesn't matter if they're on Harvard street or Meadow Ridge drive or up in green river road in yeah. Williamstown or what have you. They're all important perspectives. Actually, we were having that conversation recently. We have a podcast that hasn't been posted yet, but you know, even with the um, conversation with the, with the redlining in Pittsfield um, and how, uh, there are neighborhoods that are uh, completely, you know, sort of um, just underrepresented in, in so many ways. And, and that comes from even people who bring petitions to the city council. And if you're from this neighborhood, you don't get the same kind of um, response as you would if it was from, say, the southeast and so forth. And and they're all really important. And and I don't know. So I, I really appreciate you bringing this up. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there's an opportunity for Pittsfield because I mean, well, when did you come to Pittsfield? Uh, it was, I, I, always I mean, you, you grew up, but then yeah. like when, when you sort of grew up, I feel like you grew up professionally. Like I, I say, I use that term, like grow up, like it was in that time when we were, it was kind of hopping, uh, oh, yeah. in, in the downtown, you know, yeah, and, it was um, an inspiring time. I, I heard your conversation with Mark and you guys touched on a lot of the stuff that was going and Megan Wielden as well. Yeah. Um, my perception of it was, uh, also the copper works and, um, Pittsfield contemporary in the word by word festival. Like I was always, uh, pretty attached to whatever Jim Benson was doing. Cause yeah. I, I hosted the open mic at uh, mission for a long time. That's right. I played at the brew works for a long time. So I was connected with that, like 
movement towards like what's pittsfield becoming this is so cool and uh i also watched that kind of fizzle out too and see a lot of people involved kind of lose steam and feel like ah man what a missed opportunity but you know things change and people get older and you know uh right just like we were talking like the the people who ran sheepacular right they're not going to do that again. They, they, you know, they they made their contribution. So right. the handoff has to be, you know, Megan Wilden. She's going back to California. Like, who's going to sort of carry that torch? We all we all have to. I mean, that maybe not you who's going back to New Zealand. Well, no, I mean, I probably won't be doing that for uh, a few years anyway. And I've been trying to make a contribution in the past few years with throwing these events. And you have, yeah. Um, and I plan on continuing to do that. Uh, it's just obviously been unsafe. Um, I did one party on black friday this past year which i learned after the fact that maybe 30 percent of the people got covid from that so uh that's kind of pushed made me pump the brakes on other plans uh, but i think the fact that milltown now has so many spaces and and an, enthu- and an enthusiasm to like um have interesting events i'd like to be part of that uh as well and i think that they're is actually a better foundation now to do cool stuff than there was in the past. I think a lot of it was like DIY, like let's figure out a way, but I think the city has expressed um, a willingness to kind of be helpful um, around planning unique, interesting things. And I think uh, what I've reached out to you about with there being this influx of of new talent and uh wealth that are coming to the Berkshires, I think expectations are gonna increase too. Like mm. and I don't think we've seen it yet. I know there's a lot of um talk about how bars in particular are closing earlier and uh so it seems like the the nightlife is dwindling. But I think this is just a lull. I think what's actually gonna happen and then the, the coming months hopefully is that uh these people that have come into the area are gonna say well hell we wouldn't have moved here if there was nothing going on so like we're ready to go as long as it's safe in and, new york state you're open till 5 a.m yeah you know? like what are you, what yeah. are you shutting down I'm at 10 o'clock for party? Come on. <laughs> and i mean you see it in certain places like last summer i don't know if you've been to the apple tree yet but um gotta go there you man. Gotta this go, is, man. I, it is dave brown and oh and that's not even the half of it i mean he's great and i'm so glad he's there but like there have been so many good musicians that have played there and last summer it was kind of like a covid free environment like not that it actually was but everyone acted like it just never existed i mean i remember being in the ostrich room with 100 plus people maskless thinking well i hope no one's got COVID, yeah. but <laughs> i've somehow managed to not get it <laughs> knock on wood i think that's real wood you can knock on yeah, that there we go. <laughs> uh, but yeah i think i think pittsfield's gonna be on the upswing in terms of um things to do and you know the issues that have haunted pittsfield for a long time i think are um they do need a little creativity and someone who actually cares that doesn't just have a response in the can for when a certain question comes up. And that's why uh, I'd be, you know, honored if the opportunity came to help make some uh, um, campaign material for you, because uh, without even knowing what your platform and ideas are about uh, changes you might make to the city, 
just having the uh you know the knowledge of your good naturedness and then also again just that real quality um and in the the active engagement that's enough to tell me that like things that aren't being heard right now in Pittsfield uh would be and uh i think that uh that's that's what the city really needs is less of the rigid i mean i saw it so much with the liquor licensing board and the decisions they're making when i worked for Bethesda. Mm. Oh, yeah. like it was like man where is this coming from yeah. uh like i understand parts of it but also there seemed to be like kind of this like attack mode uh coming from the city mm. at times and i just wondered what that was about and i really felt like it was that there's some agenda that wasn't being discussed but that was kind of i don't know i'm maybe speaking out of turn in in, in this sense no, but. I, <laughs> I think i think you're right on the spot especially in that case um <laughs> you know and, and it has been said that uh you know one of the toughest places to do business is downtown uh you know because there isn't necessarily you know a feeling that critical mass is is the way forward it's kind of a super competitive aspect and um and there's a lot of anecdotes uh over the years from different business owners that that i've certainly heard um and stuff that has been very public i mean you know the license you know the license board and and uh, the newspaper you can you can you can see it um and you put the pieces together and you, and you kind of see what's going on but um but you know a, a lot of that i think is just a matter of helping people understand that we're all in this. We actually are all in this together, even if you're different businesses and you think that, you know, one business is going to cut in on territory and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but when you create a true critical mass, it benefits absolutely everybody. And, um, and sometimes that's, that's tough to, to accept when you gotta, you gotta make ends meet at the end of every month <laughs> or, or what have you, but, um, but you gotta believe in it. Yeah. What you really want is people to be moving in waves, right? Like you want people to come downtown, like, Oh, I go to mission. And then at 10 o'clock we go down to Thistle or like, let's head over to Methuselah. But like, I, I mean, when I was young, you weren't just going to one place and staying there. It, you were like hitting up three or four different places. Uh, or once one place closed, then you're moving on. I mean, I'm glad to not be doing that now because <laughs> I, I just couldn't handle it. it sounds so exhausting. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah. does. I also don't know how we afforded to do that. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't have kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I would like do the math. I'm like, <laughs> how do I? How can I afford my rent? Like, wow. <laughs> but anyway, it is funny. And 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 then there's. I mean, of course, there's. And, and I think this is, you know, maybe near and dear to your heart also, but. You know, while a lot of people would look at the big picture and say, wow, uh, you know, Pittsfield is way away from a concern of gentrification. Um, but when there's no, when there are fewer, fewer choices for people trying to find, an aff- and by the way, this is everywhere because the cost of housing everywhere has, you know, I was just talking to the mayor of Salem, who's running for lieutenant governor about this very issue. And it's not just Salem; it's it's, it's everywhere. It's right. not just Newton, Massachusetts, or 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 Great Barrington, uh, Pittsfield. Um, I think I think you know one of the biggest issues with Pittsfield is the lack of quality housing, um, because once you kind of hit that threshold of older homes, maybe that's where it's a little bit more affordable, but the quality goes way way down. Right. As far as that goes. So you what you need in those situations 
in order to not let that then get knocked down, which I was involved in a, a project that Tessa Kelly uh, uh, put together last year where she wanted me to go basically capture for a few minutes, like just a, a, a house on the West side that was like scheduled to get torn down. Mm-hmm. So I filmed like 20 houses and it, knowing that that many houses in that neighborhood are going to get taken down yeah. within the next couple of years. This is like startling. It's like, man, it is. It is. I mean, I used to deliver appliances and I saw the condition of a lot of, uh, of houses, some of which I ended up, you know, capturing video of. Um, and it's not surprising when you see like how some of these houses look on the inside that they would eventually get condemned. Um, but the only way to prevent that from happening is for someone to be able to invest in it with enough to then also bring it back. Right. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about gentrification, um, the, the question becomes, is there a way to do that with the people that live in those areas in mind? And I said this to waterfall a couple of years ago. I was like, well, you know, it'd be really cool is if like a handful of us, uh, maybe even upwards of a hundred people like invest in a neighborhood mm-hmm. so that you're buying properties as a group uh, that you're all investing in um, so that you then become owners of, of that property. But also like if there ends up being a house or two that just can't be salvaged, like you're not all losing independently. Like mm. it's like a, okay, yeah, we yeah. We'll cut and our losses here. Kind of right. Thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the idea then being like, if you can turn it into housing that doesn't drive out the people that are living there now, but gives them a better uh, housing option. And if it can be subsidized, which some parts of Pittsfield are, then you're like getting money back on your investment. And there's certainly um, um, housing companies that can then take care of the property for you. So even the management side of things, you don't have to worry about, but like it would be, you know, community investing in community rather than what is likely going to happen, which is it becomes so cheap that someone's like, well, I see a great opportunity here. I'm going to buy all of it. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I do, I'm going to do with it what I want. And I'm going to turn it into really nice housing that I then seek $2,000 rent in. And then suddenly a neighborhood that was occupied by one group of people now is occupied by a different group of people because you get priced out. And I, when I said to you on Facebook, you know, I think that isn't a community government there to support its own community. Like if the answer is purely, well, let's bring in uh, or make it more attractive to people that don't live here, then suddenly the landscape changes. And then you're ultimately like saying that the people that were in certain spaces you know, don't deserve to be there anymore. And I just think that's wrong. Um, and I think that part of the issue is that we haven't figured out ways to offer opportunity that's substantial to certain parts of our community. Like some people are struggling in ways that we haven't, you know, given an answer or offered an answer to. And I know that it's a complicated issue and one that isn't like, Oh, it's so easy to just change your perspective and suddenly that solution comes along. But I think an active investment into that versus just saying, well, uh, Forbes says it's an attractive city (laughs) now. So now like 
let's see what happens. And but again, you know, gentrification is uh, uh, something that can't necessarily be controlled. So it's not like it's it's true. I I I'm a big believer in, and I I think that we can be more creative in finding different kinds of models, and not necessarily different models that haven't been done elsewhere. Like uh, in order to keep money flowing through a community you know you, you spend money in a community and you kind of keep it in the community and you know and i think that's you know people talk about that i suppose a lot from an economic standpoint but because things have become so ultra corporate so much of our money goes to corporations or uh, or or what have you i mean you go to walmart a big chunk of every dollar that you spend goes to the pockets of very wealthy people amazon same thing and, and so forth things are starting to change because in a lot of ways things have hit rock bottom for the workers there so i'm a big proponent of amazon you know unionizing, uh, unionizing yeah. and starbucks unionizing and and all of that but you know when when you look at how how do you keep money back into the community and if if especially if you have locally um, owned property. I mean, I even look at things like um, the incinerator plant that uh, was now is going to be sold for a million dollars after it went into bankruptcy. Why in the world did the city not look at purchasing it itself right. and creating some sort of operation, even if they're uh, even if the operation is being done by an outside contractor, but they're local, you know that, that sort of thing. As opposed to now, they're going to take all the pieces apart and probably sell them for parts. And then we don't have any place to send our garbage. I mean, that's Wait, a, so it's not going to be there anymore. It's a possibility. It's oh, a possibility. Yeah. So again, I mean, these, this just like one example. Um, I'm not in the corner office right now, so I don't know exactly if that conversation was, was ever had, but that's something that, you know, you should do. Um, and I, I think we got to look at things different worker owned type things. Um, you know, anything that will keep dollars uh, flowing inside the community as opposed to taking a big chunk of money and sending it out because we've been so deeply impacted by that uh, i don't think people even realize how just ridiculous i mean you know i mean we have inflation now and it's where are your choices where are your choices for food to, to buy food where are your choices to buy really anything and it's hard to not do that i mean the the, the world has encouraged us not to be independent in our ability to even grow food yeah. <laughs> like there's there's discouragement of 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 independent um you know farmers and that sort of things whereas we subsidize the corporations so i think you know from a local perspective obviously your your power is limited but there's lots of little models out there um that that people are doing some really great things and i think you can sort of support that and then over some time you start to to change that economic circumstance well what's really interesting is when i lived in nashville that was the tone it was like hmm. how can we do everything locally how can we do it sustainably and that like there was these permaculture uh workshops everywhere people were using their front lawns to grow food and uh and there was this you know active like let's be self-sufficient and support our community and then what happens is that once you get that influx of money, it's like, now you have a Lululemon shop. Now you've got like $10 <laughs> coffee, you know, like, and I think I, I talked to yeah, the yeah. Um, employees at the Arcadian shop the other day. Uh, and I was like, Hey, so um, have you guys noticed like more traffic in here since 
the pandemic with people moving to the area and they were like, yeah, we used to uh, know everybody that came in here. And then suddenly there were just so many more uh, faces that we didn't recognize that would come in here all the time. And I think the same is true of Guido's. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so what I think is likely to happen is that you're actually going to get more of a demand for specialty uh, shops as well as high-end restaurants uh, or uh, in that, you know, in terms of being an attractive location for tourists, that's wonderful. But if we're not careful, like it can price out, you know, people that live here currently from wanting to go out to eat or go to the grocery store, you know, if like enough demand exists for Guido's, then it's like, well, then uh, why not charge more at stop and shop in this area? Like, right, right. and I think uh, that's something I'm concerned about because I'm already feeling it like yeah. everybody else. Oh my God. The grocery store is unbelievable. And, I, and they talk about percentage wise of inflation and they say, well, it's you know 7% or it's 10% or what have you. But <laughs> I think that may be sort of aggregated throughout the economy because I, it's not that number. It's got to be much greater at the grocery store because, you know, when items collectively that may have cost 80 bucks uh, a year ago is like 120, 130. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah. The increase has been dramatic. Yeah. I remember last summer getting a ribeye steak for like $15 and now it's like 25. Yeah. It's like, holy <laughs> moly, I guess I'm That's bigger than 7%. Now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's nuts. Uh, the math uh, it's, it's, yeah, it has been uh, devastating. I think, and I think it's, it's not, I mean, people are feeling the pinch. People are feeling that pinch, um, and and it going right through uh, the broad middle class of what's left of the middle class uh, in this country. It 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 isn't just you know sort of you know any lower income or what have you. Everybody is right. really feeling it. But what's interesting about our area is that it's now becoming an attractive area to upper middle class, if not like you know borderline rich people that are then able to come in and it's not as big of an issue, but their tastes are already higher. So again, if we then cater to that, which who wouldn't want to like, it makes higher margins. Yeah. Right. You're like, I can charge more, of course, you know, and uh, they're willing to spend it. Whereas other people are being more conservative about their money because everything costs more. So their purchasing power has diminished. Mm. Like then your primary target is going to be, uh, a wealthier group of people. And I just think that the effect that could have on the rest of the community might be different than other parts of the country where yes, everybody who's middle-class is struggling, but like they don't also need to now compete with the fact that the the most uh, profitable group of people is new. You know, right, right, and you know, a lot of people are buying properties up as you know investments. Um, and I think nationwide, uh, there are big investments being made uh, internationally uh, in in just property, uh, which is going to continue to drive that. Uh, so it's 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 an interesting time. It's an interesting time, but I I think community planning and municipal planning is is more important now than ever because you know you can really you know whenever you make a 
fork in the road and you choose this way or slightly this way, that outcome, it is such a dramatic difference because, you know, a 32 degree angle this way <laughs> will go a lot <laughs> further in one direction as opposed to the other way. So, um, so those decisions that are made, uh, yeah, you, you, they, they have to be made uh, with care. In a nutshell, do you have a particular vision for the area? <laughs> like, were you to start leading Pittsfield uh, tomorrow, what would be, you know, your first order of business? Well, I, man, <laughs> I really didn't expect this. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, I think doubling down um, on on services to to begin with, because I think you know, I think people who live here. Um, have an expectation and should have an expectation for services to be of a certain level. Um, and, and whether that's filling potholes or fixing sidewalks and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think it's important to, to, to firm that up um, because believe it or not, people really, really like that. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think, I think it's underrated as to how much uh, people uh, are very happy when they see responsive uh, city. Um, education has always been uh, number one for me. Um, that's the, the area where, uh, you know, we have our, our long time challenges with school choice. Uh, we have challenges with the, the very diverse um, people who, young people who are in our schools. So we definitely have different kinds of challenges that other communities don't have. Um, I think there are some innovative things that we can do, particularly when it comes to partnering more with uh, other school districts. I think there's a lot more that we can do because if you look at, you know, here, here's an example, Chinese. Um, so do, I don't know if there's a Chinese language course in Berkshire County, but is any one school district going to provide Chinese? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe the Great Barrington District, you know, uh, maybe maybe they would want to do it. Um, maybe Mount Greylock would want to do it, but you probably only have a, a, enough interest for for one course. But today we have the technology. <laughs> you know, like how in the world are we not sort of sharing those resources across Berkshire County to be able to provide the best experience in the classroom? And I think that's really important to make sure that every dollar that we spend. Uh, for education countywide goes to the classroom. So I think I think there's some opportunity there uh, to be able to improve uh, the classroom experience, not only in Pittsfield, but even throughout uh, the Berkshires. So I think that would be, um, that's kind of a heavy lift, but one that I think is worth worth doing. Um, and then, you know, housing is, is as, as you mentioned, that's a big deal. Um, but I think the downtown does need a shot in the arm. <laughs> like, like downtown is never... You're never done with it. You're never done with it. You don't say, okay, well, we did the downtown. Now we can move on to the morning side. Yeah, sure, we got we got to focus on the morning side and, and keep progress going there. But you don't just you don't just forget the downtown. Um, and I think it's I think we always have to recognize it as the city's front doorstep. And if that's the case. You got to keep sweeping that front door stuff. Sure. <laughs> you know, you have to. You know, you have to make sure it looks it, it looks great, and that you are listening to the business owners there because there's a lot of business owners who could just as easily head out to Allendale, and and they have, um, you know, in some cases, or you know, other places that there's you know easier parking or what have you. There are challenges doing businesses down uh, doing business downtown that you don't see necessarily every other place. 
So I think being responsive, kind of be responsive to every business owner, but especially the downtown businesses. I think I think there has to be a recognition of that, and, and they need to be listened to. So, uh, so there's a few things now for the downtown because obviously I'm interested in that. I lived uh, in the Greystone Building for a couple of years mm. and worked on um, on North Street as well. Uh, both having worked at Mission Dotties and then also at Methuselah, um, spent a lot of time in downtown Pittsfield. And I'm curious as to what ideas you have to uh, to improve that. I mean, I know I thought it was a missed opportunity when the mall closed to not invite some of the stores that were in the mall to occupy space uh, on North Street because I think from my perspective, there's just not enough draw and if you want to benefit the uh the restaurants to give people another reason to come downtown would you know increase traffic because what i see happening and maybe this is different for you but i see people driving onto north street parking directly in front of where they want to go going into that place Mm -hmm. getting back into their car and leaving like there's really not much foot traffic on north street that uh is related to uh shopping or you know i think well right now there's a there's a lack of continuity between the north north end of of north street and the original i think you know southern north street was kind of where investment really started happening with the central block and and you know some other projects uh in that area uh closer to to city hall um you have a building that allegroni purchased but right now so they they took that building over in 2018 2018 and they were going to put uh, market rate housing there uh, in apartment you know in a form of apartments and there was going to be retail on the bottom floors so i think it really is needed you need a little bit of um uh, a push uh for Allegroni to do what Allegroni was going to do because right now the YMCA project that's getting done, and that's an Allegroni project. Yeah. So somebody in the city has to say, "Hey, look, you are really hurting our downtown right now because there's a that's a big, big building that's basically a dark building, right? Uh, stopping that continuity between the north end and um, and the southern portion of of North Street. So that project has to go forward, and that would that would be a helpful uh, push, um, but. You know, for me, I think it's just a matter of being responsive to business owners. So, as an example, um, the bike lanes—you can you can love them, you can hate them, you can be indifferent about them. But one thing that wasn't done was listening to business owners because it probably would have looked different. It may not have been. It, it probably still would have been one lane of traffic either either way. And I'm and I'm actually a proponent of that. I I think that sort of. Uh, quiets traffic a little bit. It gets people to drive a little bit more slowly. But I could have imagined maybe there would have been a compromise somewhere. Maybe there would have been a different form of parking, maybe a little bit of diagonal parking to give a space and a half for every space that's there for parallel parking. And the bike lane would have been maybe more narrow, that sort of thing. But you got to have the conversation first. I don't I don't know what that looks like. Right. But you can't not talk to Stephen Valenti and you can't not talk to Jess and and others, you know, who are who are invested in the downtown. So, um, I think I think that is an important thing. And getting the conversation going again uh, in downtown 
that's that solves a lot of the issues believe, <laughs> believe it or not you know when you when you listen and, and you engage um and and you don't just do things without telling anybody do you think you might also have the irs audit the clock shop and the electrolux store to find out what's happening in those <laughs> like how are they open <laughs> like what is actually happening in those places like i've never seen anyone walk in do they own the building so they don't have to like pay rent? Like, <laughs> well, the Electro Lux. I mean, he, you know, lots of people have their luxes. The oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I okay. mean, there, there's probably it's probably. Um, I mean, they go out and service those things. I think so. Oh, okay. Well, um, in that case, I just pictured like <laughs> I don't, the clock illicit. shop. The clock shop. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't speak for that. But yeah. uh, you know, I've I've had an Electro Lux uh, in the day, and and they do get serviced. And I mean, I don't know how much they carry in the store now, you know, versus, um, maintenance or, or what other, I don't know their business model. <laughs> uh, like how else are they surviving? And then there was like that computer comfort <laughs> business that looked like they only sold like computers from like 1970, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like on the corner. Yeah. Anyway, on the, on the, um, on the east side of of Broad Street, right uh, near just just before just before the block Saint of Joe. Saint Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I know the business owners there. They they're I don't know exactly what the business model is, but they 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 work hard. They do some good. I think I think they're a business to business type of uh, entity. But good. Um, I'm glad I asked because I've just been in the dark about this forever, <laughs> wondering. <laughs> so each and every one of them, we're all going to have them on the podcast and they're going to tell us all about their business model. Yeah. <laughs> like Justin, just so you know, it has nothing to do with oh, shady activity. Uh, <laughs> I love it. But I guess the question is when you have a storefront on, uh, on North street and the, the ideal thing would be like, Oh, I can walk in and I can buy something to the retail. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if that's a thing. I don't, I don't know if that's something in 2022 that is a reality that you'd be able to have that sort of retail experience uh, in the same way you did in the 70s or 80s and and that sort of thing. But um, but that's a good point as to like what are those retail spaces being used for, or what are those spaces? Period. Never mind retail spaces. Um, I think in some ways there has been. Uh, now, I mean, look at massive graphics has the old space where, uh, you know, our, our show used to be. Yeah. Um, and, um, and to, to some extent, I mean, again, that's a service that's not necessarily sort of retail as it were, but, um, but it's a, it's, you know, it'll have foot traffic because people have projects and they want to go in maybe to see, uh, the, the owner there, Mike. Um, so barbershop, there's a lot of barbershops. <laughs> Well, uh, to me, it makes Have sense. You seen, there's been a lot of bar, new barber shops on in, in North Street. Well, Sims, unfortunately, is no longer because right. of uh, the fire there, which I made a joke about that. If there was ever an example of the Phoenix rising from the ashes, it is the new Amart. Like, holy moly. <laughs> when I drove by and saw that for the first time, I was like, Whoa. man. Yeah, it's crazy. It. Now. The only thing I would say about that is I, I wish they would have uh, been, you know, so ur so urban uh, planning would have you have the building up front and you don't want to have in a downtown, especially a downtown or really anywhere, uh, this idea that you have a sea of parking and then the building. You right. kind of you kind of want the building to be uh you know the the frontage as it were and the parking sort of in the back. I mean, obviously there are 
constraints. They have a sorted history with yeah. the behind the building there, which maybe good point. Good point. Good so point. They might have been like, "Yeah, hey, it's better to good point. see what's happening." Good point. But if you but if you look at things, the uh, uh, developments in urban renewal, like say the big Y, uh, you know, technically the big Y is downtown, right? Um, but you would never really think of it as downtown because it doesn't feel that way because you have this building that is um, has a sea of parking in front of it. Yeah. Um, so in an ideal world, it really wouldn't have been built that way, uh, for example. But CJ Haas will tell you about that. Cornelius, yeah. uh, my, my, you know, he's he's a he's a good student of these things, of course, as a city planner. But um, but he's also a, a stickler on these things. But um, but I think you know th- those are the kinds of things that make a downtown more attractive. Less parking out front, uh, you know, fewer vehicles to sort of get in the way. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I think you know ultimately. It is its own neighborhood. Yeah, it is its own neighborhood, and so you know we talk about neighborhoods. Um, the downtown is has its own uh, character and its own group of constituents, business owners particularly, um, but a lot more people who live downtown than they did twenty years ago. I think I think there was a time, maybe in the early two thousands, and someone you know if someone had said, oh, there would be people who are who would pay two thousand dollars a month for a Two bedroom, two bath apartment in, in on North Street, they would have laughed at them. Right. <laughs> like, what are you? What are you crazy? But that actually that actually did happen. Yeah. Um, through I think the investments, you know, the storefront artist project that brought uh, retail sort of back uh, to to the downtown and uh, and then downtown living. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine? Um, Twenty years ago, it would have been unthinkable. So you know, so there's a lot to build from. But you're right. You're you're right in the sense that there's a lot more to build from than there was 20, 15, 20 years ago when it was really kind of like, wow, we 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 had hit rock bottom. Yeah, I do have one question for you that uh, I know Janet Crawford, a good friend of mine, would would be curious to know, and that would be as mayor. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. <laughs> what, what would you do about the carousel? Wow. Uh, you know, I, I remember sitting in a meeting and it had, uh, I don't know, I don't think Jim was there, but it was members of the Schulman family. Um, the mayor at the time, Deanna Roofer was there. Chris Yan was there. And it was before they had sort of put the carousel anywhere. Um, and we were advocating, some of us at the table, uh, were advocating that we'd really love to have that carousel be on the common as a part of that reconstruction. And, and that's not, that's not a new idea in any stretch. seems like the most appropriate place for it, but yeah, I mean, and you know, and, and what, and, and the barriers to that were a, a few things, you know, number one, it was like, okay, well, this is city property. Now you're going to put a private entity on a city property. How does that work? The other uh, constraint was the fact that the family wasn't interested in that. They wanted to have, uh, sort of their their own setup, the museum adjacent to it, and so ultimately that led to them going forward with the plan on their own property because you know that, that you know Jim had his his property there um, in West Pittsfield, um, yeah, and people know where it is. It's you know uh, in that area on uh, Center Street, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, ideally that would that would have been when you look at it. Saratoga. There's a there's a place called uh, Congress Park, and it's uh, on that 
park is the Campfield uh, Casino. It's a historic building. A lot of weddings there. You know, one day, maybe you'll probably shoot a wedding there or something like that, <laughs> or or what have you, or maybe go to a wedding there. But um, but one of the key features is this carousel that they have on the property. It's an enclosed. It's a very simple structure. It's not. It's not. Um, large. It's just basically a sort of a glass encasing kind of thing. And it's a wonderful place that is open when people uh, basically uh, spend money to open it, you know, so you can, you know, spend a little bit of money, they'll open it up. So it's, 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 it's designed in a way that it makes sense for specific special occasions. So if there's a birthday, so if there's you know another kind of event, it, it was never set up to say, okay, well, here, pay five bucks or something or two bucks and you get to ride around a few times and because that's not really sustainable. Right. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't really feel sustainable in the first place. And and it turned out that that, that was the case. So I think it really needs to be attached to sort of a special event space. And right now, where it is, it isn't really attached to a special event space. Well, if you consider COVID testing a special event, <laughs> you can do that over at CVS. <laughs> uh, here you get your COVID test. Here's a here's a ride. Yeah, free ticket. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! But um, that so I, I guess if if someone was to say okay. Like you, you're the you are the czar of the the carousel, um, which I'm not. Uh, but but what I what I would do is is try to think of okay, what is a special event location indoors, maybe outdoors, and how can we bring the carousel into that mix and then fit that into the business model so that the use of the carousel would be an extra value added uh, uh, aspect to the special occasion. Not the centerpiece. Yeah, because it, it, it just it doesn't work to be the centerpiece. Yeah. Um. Of uh, of you know it was it was nice when it first came out because there's a newness to it, but um. But that only that then you get one you get one shot at that. Yeah. Then you're like I'm on Center Street <laughs> <laughs> in a parking lot. Hey, Center Street. Don't knock on Center Street. That's no. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> no, wrong no, with no. Center Street. It just. It doesn't seem like I, the, I, I literally don't think anybody really cares, but that's that's one street. I'm not sure if anybody really cares about Center Street, but uh, but there are people who live there. Actually, yeah. there's some really wonderful people who who live on Center Street. So I, I'm remiss, but um, and there's a great Sunoco there too. Yeah, um, nice young business owner uh, who took over the Sunoco. So anyhow, nothing bad about Center Street. It just doesn't <laughs> seem like the most picturesque part of town to have your carousel. Yeah. So yeah, of course, ideally in the common, because there's lots of events there and then yeah. you'd be able to do that. But I mean, you could, uh, you know, imagine something else, um, you know, if, if you had it, you know, I, even if it was, um, you know, nearby the, the, the balcony at uh, Berkshire Hills, for instance. I, I was mean, thinking the same. You know thing. what I'm saying? Like, yeah. uh, or Pittsfield Country Club or whatever. Again, or Proprietor's I mean, you know, Lodge. Or Proprietor's Lodge. Exactly. Um, I don't know if the neighbors would like that. But anyway. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> They don't like but, anything over there. <laughs> I, we love our neighbors over there. <laughs> but, um, but, and, and we can strike a balance there. Um <laughs> I'm just, so you I'm get, just in you terms of noise, they're not welcoming to any additional noise. And got you know, to be honest, if suddenly there was a, a carousel next to my house, I'd be like, damn it, 
So I'm not, there's no judgment coming from that. I would be annoyed if there were weddings and all kinds of loud events next to my house too. So, yeah. I mean, the other thing is there's no bowling in Pittsfield. Right. And, you know, so for me, again, these are small slices, but it's like these things like add up and, you know, okay, big deal. There's no bowling, but that's one thing that there's hundreds of people in our community that's their thing. That's right. what they, now they have to go to North Adams or Great Barrington or somewhere in New York state uh, to, to go bowling. So in that process where we gave Berkshire Roots this permit to do big, big things, and that's a really big building out front. <laughs> it's, it's a monstrosity on Dalton <laughs> Avenue. I mean, it is huge and um, it's like one of the and, tallest business, uh, buildings in town now. i don't even know how that thing was approved anyway so uh anyhow as that property continues to expand okay there goes the bowling alley but where was the thought and where was the conversation to say hey wait a minute this is a priority you know maybe not for you non-bowler but there's a lot of people here who care about this how do we make this work and i feel as though that was something that didn't that didn't happen, um, you know, because there are definitely innovative. Because uh, and what made me think of it was special events, because there are some bowling alleys that are sort of these uh, bowling alley. Bowling alleys itself are they are special events. You know, you have a bar there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you have usually uh, other space adjacent to it. Um, some places have have done more innovative type things where. The bowling alley is a piece of a wedding reception or you know something sure. like that um and, and by the way candle lanes the biggest thing there was birthday parties for kids you that know? place was so fun you know so it's like how many things have we lost <laughs> you know um just the, just little things again like it's it's one piece here one piece there but it can be death by a thousand cuts but you know, it it seems to me that um, that those little things they do matter, and so a little bit of effort and 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 thought, um, whether it's the candle lanes, whether it's the Ken's Bowl, whether it's Wakona Park uh, with a grandstand that uh, isn't up to code, and we got to figure that out. Um, uh, a Taconic High School track that uh, can't really have a regulation track meet. Um, to you know taconic baseball games that have to you know they have to play on the road for the first few games because the field's not ready you know things like that um so i think some of that falls in the in the area of city services where people have an expectation that we got to just do what it, do the bare minimum <laughs> to make sure that we keep these things going um even though they're not necessarily public venues ken's bowl was not a public venue but right. uh, but we could have used influence from the city to to be able to to keep that going yeah and i think what's interesting about uh everything that you're saying is it's making me realize that uh retail is such a risky uh business right now to open sure. a shop right when you know that you could be undercut by amazon and everyone's gotten so used to just yeah. ordering online anyway <laughs> or you can just get locked down and yeah you know, and nobody right. can come exactly in. and then yeah my wife and i were talking about opening a bubble tea shop up in williamstown before the pandemic and we were like this close to signing a lease mm. and the only reason we didn't was because the uh the building owner wanted us to sign it for five years and we we're like well we don't know if we want to stick around that long so instead we took our money and bought a house but um if we had done that, not, we not would, the worst investment. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> no, it, was, it turned out to be a much more profitable one if we do end up leaving the area. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, one thing that 
what you're saying makes me realize is that perhaps a good use of the downtown would it rather than focusing on re- retail at all is to like offer more opportunity for like entertainment uh and we've certainly explored restaurants downtown uh and you know some have come and gone but like there are big spaces that could be used in ways that we're not currently seeing i mean barrington stage has been a huge success mm-hmm. and that doesn't or there's no reason that if we made a venue that was attractive to bands that would have played at, yes you know pearl street yes um and i think that given that we're having an increasing population of uh you know perhaps people that would want that mm-hmm. uh that we might actually get the numbers and mm-hmm. i know that when the whiskey treaty would perform yeah. they pull 600 people yeah so like, yeah so like the venue that uh would have several hundred people because you're if you're at a restaurant or a bar what do you get 50 to maybe 100 people tops yeah. uh it, it, so you want to get to that next level maybe not we'll call it a park you know ten thousand people well, like a stationary level. factory kind a stationary of yeah. right right yeah and, and then if you have it as a wedding space too like they do mm-hmm. uh it supports other businesses i mean i think like Shire Brewhouse certainly benefits from when uh, the stationary factory has a show. Um, and I think that the neighboring businesses downtown would benefit from maybe like, maybe not a Ken's bowl, but like the, the bowling alleys that you see in cities that are like, you know, a handful of lanes and a bar right. that serves food. Like that would be super fun. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, when I was in LA, there were like whole swaths that were like, the size of North street that like had all these different fun things that you could do. And if that's where we're at, where we're like trying to give people a reason to come downtown, make it more fun to live there. Like, so why wouldn't you want to live in an apartment that's next to the bowling alley next to where you can go see a show next to Barrington stage. Like we're already kind of going in that direction, I think, or have tried to, but like, maybe that's the future. And, um, I'd yeah. certainly come to Pittsfield more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, let's, 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 let's do that. So first <laughs> get Al Groin to start that building. Yeah. Come on. Uh, we get ourselves into trouble on this podcast, but that's okay. It's, I mean, it's just, it just is what it is. Finish the, do the building, um, you know, and, uh, but, and actually, you know, th- there are certainly some things that are the YMCA project is I think fantastic um, yeah. because it's going to finally like open up, the world to what happens in the YMCA. It's been this literally a brick wall <laughs> there, right. and nobody really knows what ha- Well, they, you know, it's the why, but, uh, but it's kind of a sort of menacing, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a appearance. Uh, whereas you have some windows there, you know, you bring life uh, out and, and, uh, and I think that's important so that it may seem aesthetic, alone but it, but it's not i think it's i think it's bigger than that yeah and it's always been interesting to me that the hotel is directly across the street from that you're like looking out your window at this big brick building like i know it's a y so i assume there's exercising or something but. <laughs> it is it is I, I you know and and i and i do feel uh that the new restaurant at the hotel seems like it's starting to pop i i was just walking by the other day and they for the first time and i can't remember the last time uh, I had seen it, but they sort of had those those glass doors open. Uh-huh. Um, to me, that was a really great sign. So Carr and I were like, "Oh wait, there's was there music on Friday night?" I, we didn't end up going because we still had the kids that night. But yeah. um, but that was that was a good sign too. So, Did they renovate it again? I don't know if they renovated okay, it. Okay, it's just um, a different chef. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a different it's a new restaurant. Um, 
they they renamed it, rebranded it. But um, but finally, I think yeah, because it went all last summer, it was basically closed. I think. Um, so, you know, that's that's a big another gap, another you know important hole. Yeah, such a <laughs> that, weird that you want that, that you want filled. Experienced. I mean, yeah. so sad for certain businesses that they couldn't endure, but. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting in the next couple of years to see like how we come back from all of that. Um, I know that my plan is to find some space in Pittsfield that uh, is currently not occupied. I'm hoping to get the space that Retro Fitness was in and throw a giant party there. Holy uh, cow. So, the, so Retro Fitness located... Next to Panera Bread. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they're no located. They're not located there anymore. Yeah. Apparently that... they've closed. Okay. Uh, a lot. I guess a lot <laughs> of their members are now at Nautilus. Uh, what I do know is that the space may be empty, and if it is, where better to throw a giant party than like a place <laughs> with a huge parking lot that's not directly next to houses? So, uh, <laughs> it, I am looking for the uh, the next giant space because when we threw that party at the uh at shire city sanctuary that was something else and um i haven't topped that yet so uh, um we gotta we gotta have more parties we gotta i mean how how am i gonna fund making films unless i (laughs) make money in large sums that is so and that's that's a business model so you're you're one of those guys uh i don't know how many there are like you but uh, that that actually has an operation you have a party and you know there's 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 a budget to it and and hopefully you're able to uh, make money with enough uh, uh, ticket sales oh yeah it's a fairly simple model yeah yeah so anyone out there that and again like i said i don't know an hour ago um <laughs> about people having skills and how that benefits everybody yes would i like to be known as the party guy right now in berkshire county sure but would we all benefit from more people organizing events that are large scale yes so i'm going to tell you something that is very useful to know it's not that hard and it's very <laughs> profitable okay so just just There's the do trade it. secret right there yeah. <laughs> it's not rocket science yeah you just go get your permit you, you <laughs> get you know a detail from the fire department you make sure that the, everything's up to code for the building inspector and then you sell tickets um there it is there it is. but i want to do it if you're going to do it feel free to do it because again there's a thirst for it just as i've been doing i'm sure we're all hesitant uh until we see that there's not some new variant of covid that's ripping through communities but right now it seems like things are back to normal mostly yeah. i mean i don't i haven't seen a mask no. outside of big y in the i don't know a month yeah well thank god thank yeah. god so did we miss anything justin allen uh i, I don't know <laughs> i think we covered a lot we covered a lot. and if we missed anything i, I can't remember uh <laughs> what are we at two hours Is this- i don't i don't know <laughs> i i maybe rounding toward three. Oh, dang uh, i'm not even sure but uh but that's good i, I you know you're a good guy you're a good guy. Likewise, um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know we were gonna. His, yeah, I didn't know you were gonna turn this into a. a <laughs> well, I was genuinely a, curious. I'm so glad good. that we did. That's good. I, I like it. I like it. So, um, yeah, onward and upward, and uh, and uh, 
It's all good. It's all good. So, so keep up the great work and uh, say hi to your lovely wife, uh, Cheryl, and your wonderful daughter, daughter Ray. Ray. Um, and uh, and I wish you the very best uh, in all your future endeavors. And, I, and I'll see you down the road. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm hoping some of those dovetail. So, like I said, should you run, I I would be happy to donate some services to your campaign. Justin, love you, man. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the John Crow podcast on your platform of choice. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever works for you. Also, I would like to hear from you on the people and the stories that you'd like to hear more of. Send me a note through Facebook Messenger, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm easy to find and I'm easy to reach. I look forward to hearing from you. And if you'd like to support the podcast for less than a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking about the cost of a large latte at a fancy coffee shop, no, more like a McDonald's coffee, go into the description of this episode and scroll down to the anchor.fm link. It's right there. Just click it and you can see your options or log on to anchor.fm backslash John hyphen Kroll backslash support. Again, thank you for listening. I'm John Kroll. Talk to you soon.